In today's episode, we are talking about our favorite topic ever, company culture. Yes, it is. Uh, Join us and our special guest, Dan Strode, author of the new book, The Culture Advantage. Welcome to Empowering Workplaces. If you care about making work better as a leader or an employee and helping yourself and others navigate the evolving nature of the business world, you're in the right place. I'm Maddie Grant. I'm a culture designer and co-founder of a firm called Propel, helping organizations design evolutionary and disruption-proof cultures that are truly loved by their employees. And I'm Sonia Lacina, an organizational psychologist and president of Question Pro Workforce, where we help companies better connect with and understand their employees to create the absolute best culture and experience for all of those who are a part of their organization. We are two friends who created this podcast to talk to all kinds of fascinating people about how to empower both employees and companies to create the kinds of human, empathetic, happy workplaces we all aspire to have. We talk to people doing big things inside a variety of companies, as well as authors, consultants, coaches, and other individuals who have a story to share or really inspirational research. We really love data, so we always share new and interesting data and insights related to the topic at hand. If you have ideas about people we should have a conversation with, or maybe that's you, let us know. You can find us at empoweringworkplacespodcast.com. Hey, Dan, so nice to have you on the podcast today. Um, We'd love to have a little bit of intro, you know, a little bit about your background, how you came to write the book, whatever you'd like to share with our listeners. Well, thanks for having me on the podcast. Um, I've been listening for a while, so it's quite surreal in some senses. Um, (laughs) I'll introduce myself, though. So I'm Dan Strode. Um, I'm I'm head of, or should I say better, the custodian of the common culture in Banco Santander. It's um, one of Europe's biggest banks. We count on 200,000 people across the globe in 32 different countries. And my role there is to really look after, nurture, and foster the culture that we have. But in addition to that, um, I spend a lot of my time teaching at various universities around the world and business schools, which is one of the things I get real great pleasure and joy from. And actually, that kind of academic side and learning from what's happening in the world and what my students tell me led me on this path that... Well, I recommend it to people, but you have to go in with your eyes wide open to write a book, as you say. Um, and that's what I've spent the last year or so doing, collecting, you know, data points, evidence and so on, and putting it together in some sort of coherent format for people to hopefully enjoy. Awesome. Oh. Well, and the book, I have to say, is absolutely phenomenal. So I was mentioning to you, I just recently finished reading it. And as I was going through it, I was sending notes to my team and our Monday, our Monday meetings, I would say, guys, we have to think through this and it's an idea and this is how we approach it. And this is how we should think about innovation or, you know, Dan talked about these business models in his book. So I just, I absolutely loved it. And I've known you for a while and I've really 
enjoy the work that you've done at Banco Santander with culture and just in general. And I think for you, I know you're a father of two. Um, you have, you mentioned a one and a four-year-old. And so we'll have to chat offline about you finding the time to also write this amazing book <laughs> and teach <laughs> and do all of that. But that's probably for a completely um, other conversation. But thank you so much. I think that organizational culture is so incredibly important and a lot of companies are still trying to figure it out and there's so much change in the environment there's so much change in and what's going on globally with the economy now particularly i think even more than ever with some of the strain it's important for people to to read and listen to what you have to say because now is a time where we're going to be challenged to really make culture a priority because there are going to be so many things that we need to think about, but it really is the foundation of everything that we do, that if we take our eye off of it, um, it is most likely going to have these, you know, really negative um, ways to impact our organizations that we might not realize. So I think I know that this conversation with you now is, is just very timely. So we have a lot of questions prepared for you. As you know, we picked out, um, you know, as we as few as we could out of the many that we started with based on where you wrote, uh, based on the spirit of our podcast, and of course, always providing some unique data points, what you wrote about and what you studied um, really, you know, um, lend itself nicely to asking individuals around their experiences with you, with their organizations and innovations inside their organization. Um, we did a survey of um, 600 workers, actually between US and the UK, and we did some comparisons to get a little bit more of a global sample. And the survey respondents answered very similarly. So we combined the results. And the first question was, how open do you think your employer organization is to change? And what we found is that 43% said extremely open, we're frequently going through change. 30% said mm, somewhat open, we're not always changing, but it does happen. 20% said, nah, very open. There's some change, but it's very rare. Um, and 7% said, not at all open. I feel like we have barely changed at all. Um, Dan, when you saw that data, <laughs> what, what did you, what came to mind? <laughs> I was, I was a bit concerned, to be honest. Um, <laughs> I said, wow, nearly 30% of organizations or people within those organizations are saying that they're not open to change. The company is not open to change. And that worried me because the reality is today you have to change and you need to have a culture that lets yeah. you change. So a bit troubling, perhaps. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I think it's it's important maybe for organizations to think about what's going on inside you know, their own place. And I think I wonder if sometimes maybe the leadership things that you know, they're changing enough, but their employees have a different perception because of what's reaching them, um, how they're experiencing the, the organizational strategy or the culture. So I do think it's important to have that conversation across the organization too, um, because sometimes even as humans, maybe we think, oh, I'm doing great in this area, but then we ask friends and family, it's like, oh, shoot, <laughs> maybe I'm not doing as well as I thought. Maybe, you know, I, I need to invest some more time in different areas. Um, and then we asked one more question, which is how important do you think company culture is to your manager? And what we found here is that 39% said extremely important, 
44% said someone important, 10% not very important, and 8% not at all. Um, how about this data? Was this a little more encouraging or what did what, what kind of thoughts sparked when you saw these findings? Yeah, that's definitely more encouraging. Um, <laughs> I, I think, as you know better than I do, when, when you think about culture and the levers to, to change it, one of the things is the biases we have as individuals. So yeah. the fact that you have more managers taking an interest in this topic, trying to work on it, being proactive is obviously good news. And I think it's yeah. because people are starting to see the impact that a good culture has upon business and the results and the team. And, you know, we're in this market where employees are moving all around left, right and center. Things are changing in the world, in the macroeconomic environment and so on. And people recognize that having a good culture, a good environment, a good team spirit is good for them as a manager, as a leader. So, you know, I'm generally seeing as a general trend, more and more companies, more and more ma managers and leaders focusing on this, which obviously I'm very supportive of. Yeah. And I love that because I do feel like for a long time there were, you know, whether it was an HR team or a combination of HR culture communications, but we somehow look to a group of people to say, you set this culture, you guide it. Um, but really it lives in, inside of all of us. Mm -hmm. And I do, I agree with you that it's so encouraging that it, based on the this data, it looks like managers are taking it more to heart. Um, and they are saying and seeing how tremendous of an impact they can have on the people that are around them, that it's not just, well, I work inside this organization and these are my KPIs and these are the targets that I have to hit. Um, and if I can do anything outside of that, great, but like, no, 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 like how you connect with your people, how you live up to what the organization is makes all the difference. And that's why even in data, we'll see that you know, within the same organization, one team, even individually, could have a lot more turnover and people leaving than another team. And so you would think, well, it's the same environment, maybe the same geography. A lot of times we see that the, the way the manager relates to people really has a huge impact on that. Well, yeah, I definitely. Think, um, I think anecdotally that managers in the past had an incentive to not change, right? Because they have a system, they're kind of in charge, even if it's that their, their little team, you know, fiefdom, but there's sort of an incentive to, to keep things the way they are. But in this um, business environment, you know, as you mentioned, Dan, uh, there's so much change all of the time that if you're not able as a manager to kind of corral mm -hmm. and um, just encourage, you know, your, your people to work in a really, um, in a way that, that can take on lots of change, um, while obviously achieving the results that you're supposed to be achieving, uh, you know that that definitely gives you an advantage, shall we say? Mm. <laughs> yeah. it's, it's really true because um, you know the skill that leaders need to have now is managing change and bringing people mm -hmm. on board, and it's less about the technical things. So mm -hmm. no longer yeah. do we need really good accountants and people to manage the projects in that way. It's more about those empathy skills and the soft skills mm. that they can bring to the table. So we're also seeing that trend, as you say. Yeah. The other, so, um, sorry, just really quickly. The other yeah. really interesting thing about change, I think, is that um, actually this relates to the first data point question. Um, I think organizations in general um, are 
everybody talks about culture change all the time and culture in general, right? But I think people and companies don't necessarily know how to practically, you know, be good at it, <laughs> which of course is what your book addresses. So I'm excited to get into that. But but um, my work around culture with organizations, I, I have a very special um, specific interest in companies and organizations that have been around a long time mm. that have to that are transitioning from the old way to the new way, right? And of course, the pandemic completely accelerated all of that exponentially. Um, but I'm I have been less interested in startups and you know like very new companies that can really design their mm. culture um, immediately to be. Th- like factoring in all this change so they can sort of experiment, you know, by experimenting, right? (laughs) And seeing what works. But I think like older entrenched um, organizations, like let's say a bank, right? They have to, they have to become more digital and more um, agile and more nimble. And, you know, all of these things that are related to being able to handle change, but there are institutions that are by definition, not, kind of built that way originally right yeah anyway yeah this is this is really interesting and you know the truth is so the sad thing is or the shocking thing is if you take the S&P 500 so the 500 largest companies in the US today the models show that 75% of them 75% will not be in business in 2027 or will not be in the S&P 500 now, can you imagine a world where there's no Meta, where there's no Google, where there's no Apple? By the way, <laughs> read the press today about Meta, and maybe there's not going to be a Meta in a few years' right? time. So this is the point. Yeah. 75% of top companies in five years' time won't be in mm. the top companies any longer. Well, you need to change. You need to think about your business. Yeah, well, I often talk about um, Jim Collins' book, From Good to Great. Like, whew, that one aged, you know, questionably at best because you look back <laughs> and there are like all these organizations, to your point, that didn't make it. And I remember yeah. when I first started on my career and, you know, was helping with some executive coaching, that was one of the books we would recommend. And I remember rereading it some years later and I thought, oh, my goodness, like it really shows you when people think mm-hmm. differently. And you talk um, about, you know, several of those examples in your book, which I really loved. And I think it's it's a great reminder um, for us to really stay in tune of what's going on in the market, who are our customers, what are their needs. And it's something that worked really phenomenally at one point in time, more than likely it's going to evolve. And so how do you continue to understand like what, what you can really do best? So um, talking about your book and we're teasing all these things that we're going to dig, dig into more. Um, as long as I've known you, which at this point has been a few years, mm-hmm. <laughs> like I think about six or seven, um, you've always been a huge fan of culture and just a huge champion and proponent and someone that's approached it with all of your heart, but also really methodically. methodically. And so I really admire the work that you've done. And so when I saw that you came out with a book, I thought, well, first of all, that's incredible that you're sharing that passion and knowledge with the rest of the world. Um, And I was curious, what prompted you, like what energized you, what inspired you at that moment to take all of all of that knowledge, all of that passion and put it into into a book? Because like we're mentioning, it's a lot of work. (laughs) It absolutely is. Yeah, so I I think um, 
The first thing to say is, first and foremost, I'm a practitioner in the sense of I've been there and I've done that or I've had an experience doing that. With culture, you're never finished, you're never, you're never truly done. There's always something to do, something mm-hmm. to change, iterate on and so on. But I'm a practitioner at heart. So this is not mm-hmm. a book coming from academia uh, only, very, very heavy, very you know, content-driven academically. But it's a book full of case studies and examples and real life experience. Mm. And, you know, I think, as you said, it's, it is it is very practical. I mean, at the end of each chapter, you have a menu of things that you can go mm. away and do. You don't need to order everything off the menu. You pick and choose what you what you like best. And I'm happy that it's a practical guide. I'm happy yeah. that it's something that's achievable and realistic. And I'm happy that it comes from that place of being a practitioner. But what really gave me that impetus was Mm -hmm. I've seen in the last five years corporate culture become much more important. Mm -hmm. And I think within most organizations, cultures have matured. You know, I'm generally seeing less hierarchy. I'm generally seeing more agile ways of working, Mm -hmm. especially now post-pandemic, more hybrid ways of working, different generations in the workforce and so on. And I'm seeing that shift and people know the importance. And when I overlaid that with the S&P 500 fact and also the the fact (laughs) of what's really happening in the market there, the world is changing. And, you know, I always looked at it through the lens of, okay, banks introduced ATMs and everyone thought the world was going to to end and (laughs) there would be no branches left. (laughs) You know, it it was a crazy time. The same with the internet. Everyone thought the world was going to end. There'd be no jobs. And, you know, McKinsey did the study a few years later that proved the internet created 2.6 jobs for every one that was destroyed. So, you know, these things were not bad. But now we're at a point where technology is not just one at a time. So it's not just artificial intelligence. It's not just 5G. It's not just robotics. It's all of them at the same time. And I think that really lit a fire inside me to say, okay, we thought that change was happening fast. In the next five years, no. it's going to be even faster. Mm-hmm. So all of this is coming at us as individuals and as humans. What can we do? And I honestly, truly, truly believe in my core that a good culture, and in this case, a culture of innovation, will help you. And the book was written not only for individuals who want to become more innovative, teams and leaders who want to create that within their pod, within their pocket, but also companies that want to change as well. Um, So just sharing knowledge and and giving that out there makes me super, super happy. That that is wonderful. Um, I'll, I'll give a teaser of the different areas in your book and we're not going to be able to get to all of them we'll highlight a few but just for those of our you know listeners to know if they're going to go out and and get your book which i would highly recommend what they could expect and in there you outlined eight consistent principles um, that relate to culture and are used to drive innovation and those are rethink your business model create um, creativity with constraints have a growth mindset use the wisdom of crowds, embrace technology, hire well, put your people first, and finally, leaders participate in culture. So again, all of these very much resonate and all of them are beautifully developed in the book. Um, We picked out a few to talk about today um, to get 
you know, our, our listeners um, some information on today and then also their interest peaked in the rest. And so the first one that I know really, like as soon as I started, you know, reading the book, made me take a step back and think about my own business at Question Pro is rethink your business model. And so you give a lot of brilliant examples around organizations that did it effectively, organizations that maybe didn't. Um, now, you know, at the, at the time we're having this conversation, there are fears of a recession, what's going on with the economy. So given this time, do you think it's more, even more critical for organizations to prioritize this, to stay competitive? Like, are there any particular risks? Like given, given what we're going through now and thinking about this piece of advice, how would you bring it to life to our listeners? Like if, if that's something that resonated with them as much as me, um, what would be some recommendations that you would share? I think, um, I mean, let, let me say I painted a very bleak picture of the world um, <laughs> being overrun by robots. As you, you've, you've helped say a recession is coming, you know, mm. a lot of negativity here. But the truth mm. is, the interesting thing is, when I looked and researched these top performing companies, most innovative companies, companies that have changed, these eight principles are very, very consistent. Um, and it is less to do with the business model and more to do with the culture. And that, of course, is, is what the book goes through. And in terms of rethinking your business model, this is always the hardest thing to do, I think. And mm -hmm. probably why I started with it as the first, the first principle, because everybody has that bias of what made them successful is their own genius, is their great decisions. And that's not necessarily the case. We should all, as leaders, have that, um, you know, we, we need self-confidence, of course, but we should all have that uh, person on our side saying, or on our shoulder saying, you know, was that luck or was it really genius? <laughs> and most of us think it's genius. And therefore, we don't course correct. We don't change things. We don't try to change or evolve our business. But that's really, really important. And as you say, in the book, we look at, you know, the case of Kodiak, Kodak uh, or Blockbuster. Mm. You know, Kodak always gets me. They invented the first digital camera, but they didn't yeah. bring it to market. And that was only because of the mentality that they had. It wasn't for any other reason because they developed the digital camera. So we need to shake that out of the companies if we can. And of course, then we see really great companies rising from the ashes and reinventing themselves. And the one that we all used throughout the pandemic was Netflix. We all thought, what a great company this is. They've stopped sending me DVDs in the post. I now stream online. And now we're saying, well, they're making movies and making content. Mm -hmm. And the subscription model, that's just part of their business now. Yeah. So constantly changing, constantly evolving. And yes, I do think in a recession, we need to be more focused on this. And if you look at all the great companies that have come out of a recession in previous years, you know, Uber was started in a recession, Airbnb was started in a recession, lots of companies are started in a recession out of necessity. So yeah. all I say to the founders, to the leaders, to people in companies is understand what's your problem that you need to solve. What does the customer want? What are they facing? And go and do it. And I know it's harder to get funding in a recession. I know the environment's more difficult, but you really shouldn't stop your reinvention or your change or your new product ideas, because if you do, inevitably, you'll be too late. And when it's too late, that's not a good position to be in either. No, 
And I love, I actually just wrote down um, <laughs> an additional note that you said, like, what is the problem? Because I do think, you know, as organizations innovate, they think about a problem, they solve it. But then what happens is more competition comes to market, more individuals, more companies are solving that same problem, the problem evolves. So it's so critical to understand, like, what is the next problem now? Like, so we've solved for this. Mm. So have others. So probably this is not the problem anymore. Now, what's the next one? What are our customers thinking about versus necessarily getting better at the one thing that we already solved? Because maybe the gains there will be incremental. And that's what actually um, the next point that I pulled out from your book, which like, oh, my gosh, is somebody that also runs business development for my team. Like I felt so seen um, where you said <laughs> innovators have to improve what they do with one hand whilst creating with the other, because I always think like there are things that, you know, we need to improve. We need to get better. You know, bugs come up in technology that we need to fix, but we can't put all of our resources towards that. We have to continue to, to push. And it's not always easy because I don't think you probably talked to any organization that said, oh, we have too many resources. We just don't know what to do. We, we have too many people and not enough ideas. Like that never happens. And so it's in some ways, it's this ruthless prioritization and understanding mm -hmm. um, what you want to get after. But you also shared some really also encouraging examples for me that I'd love for you to talk about a little bit more where it's not necessarily about the resources. It's not always that there's a direct relationship that organizations that have more people that have more funding are going to come up ahead because I think a lot of us, no much, no matter how much actual funding we have compared to others, we generally feel like we could have more. <laughs> like, <laughs> with more, I could do more. Um, so if you could share with us a little bit around the findings that you, you had around innovation and time boxing, what different organizations mm -hmm. are doing um, that was actually really effective, even when they felt like maybe they didn't have absolutely everything they needed to be successful. Yeah, this is really interesting. So I called it create creativity with constraints, because mm. actually, what I found was the opposite of what I thought. So I mm. thought that if you have lots of resources in terms of people and technology, you have lots of money, and you have lots of time, surely your research and development is going to be more successful than someone who doesn't have time doesn't have resources and doesn't have money. And as I say, the opposite actually came true. So those companies who were going about their business saying, we're going to create huge teams with huge investment, often had suboptimal outcomes when it came to innovation. And those teams who had less resources and less time had better outcomes. And some of the great examples of this, um, you know, one that comes to my mind is during the pandemic, after about a year, I managed to travel um, through the airports and I was in London. And I come into the lounge, uh, British Airways lounge, and on the table was a QR code. And you had to scan the QR code and they would bring you your food and drink. And on the bottom, it was saying Hangar 51. And I said, what's Hangar 51? So I go online, I have a look, and I find out that IAG, which is the parent company of British Airways, um, had started this startup factory called Hangar 51. And they took companies through a very intense 10-week period where they had to create an idea, develop an idea, present it to the employees or the board, and find funding for it. And actually, this QR code was one of those ideas. And since then, Hangar 51 has been very successful. They've changed lots of you know, how luggage moves through the airport, how quickly they turn around the airplanes, many things. But basically, 
it got me thinking, well, hold on here. They built kind of like a pressure cooker. So they put a lot of pressure on people to work very intense and find a solution. And that worked. And it didn't just work for them. It worked for pharmaceutical companies. It's worked for many other companies who've taken this approach. So that really made me investigate more and more. And suddenly I was finding tens, 20 of these companies wow. that were doing this on an industrial scale to help them move fast, to help them go further when they innovate. And no longer did the people who were innovating have the excuse of not having enough money or enough people. That was made clear up front. You have a team of five people. You can tap into whoever you want from the parent company. You can ask for a peer, a mentor, whatever that might be. But you have this finite amount of time and finite amount of resource. And they were doing great outcomes. So I think having that opportunity to create things and sometimes put man-made or self-imposed constraints is definitely an advantage. So I, I will tell you from my perspective, this resonates so much because I actually have done a lot of work in the nonprofit sector. So um, as opposed to creating the constraints, you know, this is obviously organizations that already have constraints. They don't have a lot of money. They don't have a lot of resources. Um, there's definitely time related constraints. And so um, we found uh, in our work that that a lot of nonprofits have you know, immense capability to be really creative in finding solutions. And it's it's a really exciting place to observe what's going on. Um, and specifically, I was working mostly um, about a decade ago when uh, social media was starting to come on the scene, you know, early or late 2000s. Um, so, you know, nonprofits really experimenting with all kinds of new digital tools was very different way of working for them but you know so many really awesome things have happened with that so i really i love that yeah and it's great because they built the mentality and the memory muscle to go and do that which is you know absolutely wonderful and sometimes we need a push to do that and in other cases you just have to do it out of necessity yeah. <laughs> and you get the best results um, okay, I'm gonna try to squeeze in a couple more because I was looking yeah. at my questions and I can't pot like I can't cut either one of them. So we might run a little bit over time, but that's okay. Um, the other one I picked out, Dan. I, I mean, next time we're gonna have to just do an hour and a half. I'm sorry, yeah. <laughs> it'll have to be an <laughs> extra special podcast. Um, crowdsourcing was something else that jumped out at me. I think for two reasons. One, because we're talking about uh, being really in tune with the market and understanding like what are the challenges and what are the problems and what are we looking to solve for. And actually, recently in our own product development, so the area that I lead at Question Pro is really around employee surveys and employee listening. And um, we recently developed an action planning module, which is, you know, of course, not like, oh, my God, that's revolutionary. A lot of companies had that. But as we were going through feedback with our customers, one thing resonated time and time again, and it was actually crowdsourcing recommendations from your employees, which is really interesting because when you think about it, surveys in themselves are really a way to get input from your employees. But what was happening is when organizations were taking those insights and really turning them into action, it seems like that dialogue with the employees kind of died out or it wasn't as present. And so every time that we were showing a demo, they were saying like, oh my gosh, we love that. Because now as we see a challenge based on our data and results, and we start these initiatives, 
we can continue this more like really free flowing dialogue with our employees to understand like what would be a recommendation for this well-being initiative? What would be a recommendation for this inclusion initiative? Um, and have that on an ongoing basis. And so when I saw that also in your book, I thought, okay, <laughs> like clearly there's a really big trend there. Um, could you share with us a, a few recommendations that you discussed and, and what's the best way, like for those who are listening to us and saying, wow, like I really love that idea. How would I practically bring it to life in my organization? What are some of the things that you saw in your research? Mm. So I think, I, I mean, a company is basically made up of four stakeholder groups, the employees, the customers, the shareholders, and the communities. So the community that you operate in, the shareholders could be stakeholders, whoever's financially responsible mm -hmm. within the company or has an interest. The customers are obviously the people that you serve and the people that you might serve in the future. And then your employees are the people that work there. And I think when I think about crowdsourcing, it's important to get the voice of as many of them as possible, mm -hmm. as many people as possible. You know, we're really, really blessed now, post-pandemic, most people um, are connected to the internet. Many people are connected by Zoom. We have a global knowledge pool to tap into that we didn't necessarily have 10 years ago. So that can give you an advantage if you do it well. And, you know, by the way, I'll give an example about how to listen to your employees but, of course, there's many examples of how to listen to your customers. You know, Lego does that, how to listen to your competitors as well, or ideate and innovate together, as in, in the case of LG Electronics. So, so when I think about customers, uh, sorry, the employees, the most important thing as a company is to ask them a very clear question. So not an open-ended question with lots of possibility, but be really specific on what do you want them to help you with. And that's good for them on a number of levels. It's good for the employees because they feel their voice is being heard. They actually are encouraged to participate and speak up, which is fantastic. And through that process, they feel more engaged with the company, more yeah. likely to stay with you longer, more likely to feel committed, so on and so forth. So there's good benefits for the employees and the company because the company can then, with a very specific challenge, get answers to something that's, you know, being a problem for them. Mm -hmm. We've done this uh, many times in the bank, actually. My favorite one was we asked people what systems and processes to change. Mm. And this was like <laughs> 10 years ago, right? Mm -hmm. And actually, one of our banks had over 4,000 phone numbers and fax numbers. And each time a new product was released, the marketing team would say, let's do a new dedicated number, which makes sense in terms of the flow. And they say, Okay, one, one phone number, one product, one customer service agent, perfect. But in reality, a customer doesn't run upstairs to their paperwork cupboard, find the right phone <laughs> number. They go on Google and phone the first one. So it wasn't working, but we didn't really know that. So it was only when the employees spoke up and gave that idea as a recommendation, we knew there was a problem. And we changed the phone number. Um, it, was, it was in the UK to 0800, which is a free phone number. 9123123, which was the, the main mm -hmm. product at the time. I even offended a black cab driver in London once when he said, who can I phone about my mortgage? I said, phone this number. Do you want me to write it down? And he said, no, no, it's so easy. I can remember. So, <laughs> you know, 4,000 phone numbers and fax numbers into one was, wow. you know, a really great example. But we asked them very specifically, what systems, what processes do you want to change? And I love the idea of crowdsourcing. Companies are doing this more and more now. 
And mm-hmm. it's a really, really good way of having that sustainable and competitive advantage. Well, that's a no, great question it. too, because that that question can apply at any time, right? Because you're, there are always things that are Absolutely. deprecating that work for a purpose for a bit, but then eventually something else is better, mm-hmm. but you wouldn't know if you didn't ask the question or, or if you didn't, if you weren't able to get a more holistic view of all these different little tiny processes that kind of build up what we would call like technical debt, right? Like things that you used to do one way, but are actually slowing you down now because, you know, mm-hmm. various people are doing things differently in different departments or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. And finally, the last question, I promise, and I can't, I can't help myself. I have to ask it because Dan, you just mentioned Lego and Maddie, you had mentioned how difficult it is um, to change company culture in a really well-established organization or how much more difficult it is than for a startup. And so Dan, in your book, you talk about Lego and that is an organization that's personally very near and dear to my heart because I grew up playing with Legos and now I watch my son that just absolutely adores it. And I love watching him play with Legos over time because I see how much he is growing up and how different he is based on how he puts them together. And based like the the other day I took a photo of him where he had all this pride and joy because how tall the tower that he built was. So I think for all of us, whether it's when we were kids or whether it's, you know, for maybe our kids now, there's uh, that organization just, it, it really sparks joy when we think about them. But I think there was a time that they kind of went dark. Like you didn't see them as much. Kids weren't playing as much. But now that's like the number one request for any gifts from our kids. Mm. It's like, you know, whether it's like the Lego like house or whether it's frozen or like it doesn't matter. Um, If you could just leave us with that example, I guess I think for probably for a lot of people listening to us, they might be a part of a, you know, more established organization and are thinking, well, we are going through these different times. I think we need to evolve. How do we do it? I think you provided some really great examples from Lego, if, if you don't mind sharing them with us. Yeah, it's a, it's a really, really good case study because they hit a number of the eight principles in the book. And, you know, mm-hmm. they've done a number of them really well. And actually, I, I have here on my desk um, the Lego duck, which oh, is, this, is, this is a Lego duck. Uh, and I'll explain it so, so anyone listening can hear. But it's basically a duck made out of Lego bricks. But it's a replica of a toy from the 1930s that they made out of wood so lego started as a wooden manufacturing company yeah yeah they made tables and chairs then they moved into children's toys because it was more attractive profitable and so on and so forth so they manufactured wooden toys so they'd already changed because they then started manufacturing bricks anyway fantastic company from 1930 through the 1990s and then the wheels fell off they actually outsourced most of their manufacturing they stopped speaking to their customers and they were near bankrupt at one point or close to going out of business, brought in a new CEO who completely transformed the company and the culture. And one of the first things he did was he said, okay, what is the culture of Lego? The culture of Lego is always to serve the customer, have high quality products and listen to them. And we see that manifested nowadays by Lego's website, any customer can put an idea on the website for a new product. They can give constant feedback. And by the way, Lego does a lot of focus groups with their customers. And most of their customers are children. So if you can do a focus group with a child and understand 
what they are saying or what they want, you can do it with adults. So there's hope for all of us. Yeah. So these focus groups, they started crowdsourcing online the ideas what to make. So that was good. They were using wisdom of crowds. Mm -hmm. They also rethought their business model. So they mm -hmm. said, okay, what happens if a child doesn't buy Lego bricks? And they found out that they wouldn't go and buy another type of brick. Mm -hmm. They'd go and buy an iPad or a PlayStation. So they said, we're actually not in the brick market. We're in the children or the entertainment business. And therefore, they started making movie franchises. They started making trainers. They started moving into all sorts of different business lines. So that was, you know, really, really great. They changed their mindset there. Um, and because the customer was so important and moving fast was so important to them, they brought back in-house their manufacturing and today, 98% of their pieces are made in-house on site. And that's been really good because the engineers who make the toys or design the products can quickly run to the factory, to the product line, and see how it is in reality and mm -hmm. then iterate as they go. So that's given them a lot of flexibility back. So obviously then, since the 1990s coming out of 2000s, they've grown up to where we are now today into a wonderful, wonderful company. I know they're private, mm -hmm. but I know they're extremely profitable and successful financially, and they've done it in the right way. And as you say, nobody hates Lego as far as I know. Everyone loves them. <laughs> and I think the culture mind. is at the core. Absolutely. <laughs> That's an awesome oh, example, though. I love it. Yes. Dan, I... Like, I can't thank you enough for your time today. Um, it's, <laughs> I feel like I keep saying, like, we could keep, you know, this conversation going and maybe we will, but it will have to be a continuation of the podcast. Um, again, your your book, The Culture Advantage is out for anybody that wants to, you know, read um, about all of the other examples. I think Dan shared a few with us today, but the book is just so full of different principles. But then like Dan was saying, also like really practical ways to bring them to life and real life organizational examples. And you've had so many conversations and it's so many interviews and it's just, I think really brilliantly laid out um, in the book that you wrote. So thank you for, thank you for the book. Thank you for your time today. Um, I know our listeners just got a ton out of it. And so looking forward to, to seeing all of your future adventures and all of the incredible ways that you continue to make an impact on organizational culture worldwide. Yes, Likewise. Definitely. Thank you to both of you for having me. Um, it's, it's been a real blast, as you would say. And <laughs> I think it's true. We could just go on and on and on, but um, for another day. Yes. Yes. Thank you to our listeners. We hope you enjoyed and we'll see you again soon.